Welcome back to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast, a show that's by sports PTs and for sports PT professionals. We're here to accelerate growth in your sports PT career while giving you the tools to provide your athletes with game-changing results. Here's your host, sports physical therapist and practice owner, Dr. Yoni Rosenblatt. And here we go. We're going to talk a whole bunch about icing because I've gotten a ton of questions about what we do with ice. What do we do with ice at True Sports Physical Therapy? What's current best practice? What do we think is best? What do we know is best about ice? What the hell does the word ice even mean? Um, tons of DMs about if I could cover a little bit about this topic. And so that's what I set out to do. Um, I want to talk about the way we use cryotherapy by and large. And uh, we're going to get into exactly what I mean by cryotherapy. But let me just lay it out um, the way I want to address this. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to define a few terms. Uh, We're going to go into exactly what the literature seems to mean when it says ice. What does it mean when it says cold compression? What is intermittent cold compression? Does it matter? Uh, We'll talk about all those things. I also want to get into what are we... 99% sure about as it pertains to ice. What does the literature really convince us currently uh, that we know about ice? Then I want to break it down pathology specific approaches. So what types of pathologies do we know ice really helps or hinders? What are we not really sure of? Um, Then I want to slide into the performance world. How do we utilize this idea of messing with our body temperature, um, both systemically or uh, very specifically or region specifically? Uh, How can we tinker with that or or biohack that to enhance performance? Or what do we need to be leery of? And finally, like I said before, what do I at least currently do? I I try to approach this uh, very humbly, just like we do with all of our interventions at True Sports Physical Therapy, knowing that what we do today, maybe tomorrow we look back and be like, what the hell were we doing? But just trying to put our best foot forward and get the very best interventions that we can and outcomes that we can for our athletes um, so that they begin to to trust us, trying to be as transparent as possible, saying, hey, this is our best effort. So so that's what I want to cover in today's podcast about all things ice, so, so bear with me. It's going to be a lot of my voice because I don't have a, a guest today. And God knows I've heard a ton of my own voice today. It was a, it's a special day with Intru Sports Physical Therapy. First Tuesday of every month, we get all of the leaders together. We set up individual meetings with the regional directors. So I've been talking all day, and this is just um, another edition of, of some of what we covered in, in those meetings because some of that is clinical. Um, so... Without further ado, here is some of my thoughts on cryotherapy. So let's define the terms. So ice, um, the way it's really operationalized, is usually referring to ice packs. So that means um, when when you'll see either like the the branded packs or the packs that you'll see um, placed like in pillowcases or just putting a, a fine layer of protection in between Um, usually a mushy type substance that has been frozen, usually there's some type of alcohol base to prevent pure clumping. And usually that is what it means when when they say, hey, we're going to use a cold compress or we're going to run a study or look at um, ice by and large. 
Um, the, the other, uh, another term that is used commonly is cold compression. So cold compression usually is static compression, uh, where you're keeping a constant pressure, as well as inter, um, as well as applying um, or introducing um, a colder substance in an effort to bring down surface temperature, and hopefully that temperature bring, um, comes all the way down also at a deeper level. Um, and then finally, what you'll, you'll hear or read a lot is intermittent cold compression. And so that kind of mimics your muscle pump, which is one of the ways in which we push fluid back into circulation, into the circulatory system. Um, and so it'll squeeze you. Um, it will also get cold. Um, usually that's by way of pumped water so that it's a constant um, cold compression and the temperature remains constant. Although the compression, sorry, is not constant. It's intermittent. So it's squeezing you, releasing, but staying cold. And the idea there is that you're getting the best of both worlds. You're getting both that muscle pump and compression. And also we're playing um, with the circulation. Now, remember, when you apply any type of lower level temperature to the surface, it causes vasoconstriction. Now, what's interesting is, so you're, you're envisioning um, your venous system kind of puckering up or tightening up, and so it's going to decrease blood flow to that area. Remember, the body automatically reverses the response, that vasoconstriction, and becomes vasodilation um, after a given amount of time. Studies are kind of out as to when that transpires. We know after about 20 minutes that the body reverses its response totally, and so it becomes um, vasodilated for sure, and so blood flow will then increase in an effort, the body's making an effort to warm itself back up um, naturally. So uh, initially, kind of the original thought was simply placing that ice on it will cause vasoconstriction and maybe push fluid out. Then we began to think, hey, maybe this is actually creating a natural pumping mechanism of the venous system in which you'll cause vasoconstriction and then followed by a vasodilation. Regardless, um, it, it seems to be that the, the body does reverse its initial response after about 20 minutes. So that's why I used to... Um, be a proponent of putting ice on for only 18 minutes, although I've moved away from that um, since that point, um, as newer evidence kind of came out. But whether you're, you're looking at simple um, ice, whether you're looking at a cold compress, or you're looking at cold compression, or you're looking at intermittent cold compression, there is so much goddamn conflicting evidence on all of this, almost all of it. Um, in almost every venue, you can bring up a study that will totally support, hey, you got to ice immediately, versus one that will show you should never ice, and ice should be not even in the room um, as it pertains to a different injury. So we'll try to parse that out. I'll try to give you some, some of the best guidance that, that we now currently see or that we now currently utilize. Uh, some of it is totally anecdotal, like, hey, what's worked for our patients? What's worked for my patients? Um, and, and what's the preference? And sometimes I'll simply look the patient in the eye when they say, hey, should I ice this? Should I heat this? Say, like, whatever, whatever you think makes you feel better because I think placebo is stronger than all, um, certainly any cold compress. It seems to be that whatever the patient thinks will make them feel better is going to be the most worthwhile. So, okay, let's dive into the, the next phase of this now that we've defined some of those terms is what do we what are we fairly certain of as it pertains to cryotherapy? And by that, I mean really the garbage term of just introducing um, some type of, of temperature change or temperature lowering. So it does seem that decreasing tissue temperature 
decreases pain, period. I've seen studies that show while it's on, it decreases pain. And this is patient-reported pain. I've seen studies that that will last for a matter of an hour after you take that ice pack off. But really, since the 80s and 90s, from a lot of the literature that I pulled, we know that the patient will report, I feel less pain when I'm utilizing an icing protocol. There is a huge amount of neural component here. You, we know that you are decreasing firing patterns peripherally when you add ice to uh, an intervention or when you lower someone's body temperature. And most likely that is decreasing how rapidly those pain, um, those pain sensations are traveling up your, your nervous system. And that's a lot of why we're decreasing pain. That's why when you go to touch a surface after it has been iced, it is numb. And that is just because it is taking forever or the nervous system is blocked from transmitting uh, those painful stimuli kind of up towards your brain where, where you're going to feel as, as if you're, you're in pain. It's also interesting to note that while we've known for, for years and years and, and really decades that ice does decrease patient-reported pain, um, Dr. Denard, who's a, a fabulous shoulder surgeon um, in Pacific Northwest, he ran a study and he looked at there are good effects with ice, as good effects with just icing as you have with constant ice compression. So, and that's, that's looking at what, what we used to call an Iceman. They were like the, the biggest player in the field where you're pumping constant cold water through, um, through a pad with a little bit of compression. Um, that seems to be equally as good as an ice pack. So that, that was Denard and that, that was in the early 2000s who, who showed that. But, but again, you're going to see studies kind of back and forth, but we know that ice decreases pain. Furthermore, we know that cold submersion with all of the very best evidence seems to have outstanding cardiovascular health benefits. There is tremendous dopamine release. There is an amazing decrease in perceived soreness and DOMS. There is awesome power and endurance beneficial efforts 24 hours after completing cold submersion. And that's when you put your entire body in um, a body of water up to the neck. Um, and they usually define cold as 50 degrees and below. There's a lot of literature that has come out recently looking at duration needed in that temperature. It seems that the colder it is, the less time you actually need to spend in that um, water. So as you get down into the 40s and 30s, a lot of patients and athletes are spending anywhere from three to five minutes and seeing the same benefit as if they were staying in that cold bath from 12 to 15 minutes with the water a little, a little bit warmer, but again, should be below 50 degrees seemingly to have all of those positive effects. There's just a plethora of literature and evidence from, from massive universities that say cold submersion can have those specific effects. And so just keep that in mind as we keep kind of talking uh, about things that I think are our current best evidence and best intervention and, and stuff that really creeps up and that, that you'll see um, in our clinic or part of home exercise programs that, that we prescribe. Um, okay, so a, a big piece of the questions that I'm receiving is, okay, when do you want to use this stuff? Um, when do you not want to use it? Um, and how much of it do you want to do in the clinic? And so in full transparency, just as like uh, kind of giving away some of the answers, I think when I first started True Sports in 2014, my first big purchase was 
a freezer and ice packs. And at the time, this is when we used to have like rehab reps um, who would like find out you open the clinic and be like, hey, I can sell you this, 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 this. Um, the guy pitched me on these big ice packs, which were like 50 bucks or 60 bucks that I would keep in the freezer. And I, I remember putting them on my, my balance sheet because I'm like, how am I going to afford the 50 bucks for the ice pack? Also the freezer, what's the cheapest freezer I can get? Um, so there is a freezer in our first clinic with ice packs in it. That freezer probably has not been opened um, in a matter of months or years. And that's because I've simply moved away from it. So we do not, by and large, do ice in our sports outpatient setting. I just think it is something that like goes against my nature, um, which is I don't want to do things in the clinic that you can do on your own time. You're paying us X amount of dollars or your insurance is paying us X amount of dollars to provide you the very best. I am still very much of mind and the literature says as such, I think that your time is going to be far better spent with me, either with my hands on you, or I think now even more recently in my career, with me coaching you on exercise and movement and proper therapeutic exercise, proper loading principles, more so than these passive interventions and, and modalities like ice, like heat. Um, and, and I think insurance companies are actually kind of finally picked up on that and they don't even reimburse for it. So when I first came out of school, it was like, here was the rule. Patient walks in, you set a timer for 20 minutes, you put heat on them. You come in, you do a little bit of manu manual therapy, you do a couple exercises, you set the timer for 20 minutes again, and you put ice on them. And that's the way we did it. And it's about time. This profession has come a long way in that we're beginning to pick these things apart and say, why the hell do we do this? Why do we do three sets of 10? Why do we do uh, plyometric training? Why do we do running before jumping or jumping before running when you're doing a rehab um, progression with, with an ACL. All these things should have a reason and should be thought out. Now, as you can tell from this pod, which is somewhat scatterbrained, but the literature is so scattered as to how to do certain things. So you're not going to have concrete answers necessarily, but I'm just encouraging everyone who's listening to this, that when you choose an intervention, it is, it has been thought through process and that you can defend it, that it is the absolute best use of time, your brain power, the patient's efforts to the best evidence that we currently have. And whether that be anecdotal evidence or whether that be um, scien meticulously, scientifically proven evidence, um, it's ju you just got to have some type of thought process from it. So that's why I'm just kind of starting to pick away um, and pick apart this ice stuff. So let, let's dive into um, a study that I found, which was super granular. So, so it ties in nicely with that last rant, which is 2009, I found a study that, that looked at what ice intervention provides um, the lowest temperature to the surface to which it's applied. And so they looked at wet ice, which I just loved because it reminded me of rookie of the year and heating up the ice, but you have wet ice versus cubed ice versus crushed up ice. So the wet ice is they simply um, took ice cubes, put it in a um, Ziploc bag with water um, and created like a slushy and use that versus um, cubed ice, just the cubes versus crushed, um, kind of like we would call in Baltimore, like a snowball crushed ice. And they compared all of those 
and that wet ice decreased tissue temperature far greater than cubed and far greater than crushed. And so that's pretty good support that if you're going to ice, the best intervention is most likely one of those ice packs that is that kind of amalgamation of both water that has been frozen as well as an alcohol that will keep it moist. That seems to be um, the best conveyor of colder temperature. Um, So at least you're getting the best bang for your buck. Next, this cold with compression, um, they compared, again, what's getting colder? Um, They compared just ice, um, cubed ice. Then they compared ice and compression. Um, So that's with an ace bandage or a pneumatic compression, but it was a consistent compression. And then they compared that also to ice and flexi wrap. Flexi wrap is like the um, thick thick plastic that you'll see athletic trainers like holding on a uh, looks like a popsicle stick and they'll just wrap it around the ice. Um, shout out to, to Israel lacrosse, which is where I first learned how to, to use one of those flexi wrap things. Cause they never taught me that in grad school. So, um, and they compared all of those and what gets colder is it the ice is it the ice and compression or is it the ice and flexi wrap and ice with compression seems to decrease that temperature greater than just ice with the flexi wrap, which doesn't give you as much of a squeeze versus just the ice. So that compression is a huge player. And I think, again, that study came out in 2010. So I think that's when you really started to see these efforts to include compression at all costs. Um, So much so that um, they ran a study comparing uh, mobility as uh, so functional mobility, which is how the patient rated their ability to move around. They looked at uh, patient reported pain levels and they did that just comparing um, ice versus ice and compression and the ice and compression was far greater. So it really goes to kind of show you that, hey, maybe compression is a bigger predictor of positive outcomes after immediate pathology. That was with, a, that was with an ankle sprain. Um, than it is the ice. And I think we kind of just got on this bandwagon of ice. It does seem that in terms of lowering temperature, that ice with compression is the absolute best bang for your buck. But it could be that functionally speaking, it's all about compression and not so much ice. So when in, ba- when in doubt to cover your bases, you really want to kind of look at how do I get some type of consistent compression on the injured tissue um, especially, especially if it's acute, as soon as possible to, I think, prevent that swelling. We do far better at preventing swelling um, as a profession than we do at clearing swelling, and we'll get into that in a second. Okay, so now that we've kind of cleared up, what's the best way to lower uh, tissue temperature? Um, what is some of the functional kind of pearls or the rehab pearls, which is to include some type of compression Um, Let's get a little bit into pathology-specific utilization of cold. So uh, a lot of times patients will come in, you give them the diagnosis, and based on that diagnosis, you can start to think, how do I want to use the tools at my disposal? So how do I want to use cold in this instance if someone walks in and they underwent a contusion? They simply blunt force trauma. And so this was a really interesting study that I found 2017. This is out of Frontiers of Physiology. And so they looked at one bout of icing immediately following a blunt force trauma. Um, and they did, this is a rat-based study, but it was, it's just interesting. Bear with me. Like 
the level to which they were able to dissect this and, and the outcomes. And I think there's some pearls here that you can kind of pull out and say, hey, I want to apply this um, to my thought process. I, I know it just recently affected an ankle eval that I did yesterday. So they provide the blunt force trauma to the rat, right? Then they do, they ice the rat's limb uh, for 20 minutes once. They kill one section of those rats at on that day, okay? And they slice that they slice that leg open and they look and they compare. Okay, one group of rats was iced for 20 minutes. We just killed those. <laughs> one group of rats was not iced. We just killed those. And we're looking at both of those groups and comparing them. Ice group versus sham group um, at day one, day one of post-injury. And so... On day one post-injury, the sham group had significantly less necrosis, had far more macrophages, which clear out diseased tissue in that limb that just underwent the blunt force trauma, then did their iced counterparts. So, so why is that so interesting to me? It's interesting because it seems to be imperative, and you'll see through the rest of the study, what transpires immediately following that trauma and if you try to slow down, if you try to impede or totally prevent the body's own healing response, and that's by encouraging, you want macrophages in there so it can clean out the diseased tissue, you want to fight the necrosis that will transpire, that seems to be what happened when you just let that rat go through its healing process versus us trying to add um, icing to, to the mix because... Uh, when we added icing to the mix, they weren't able to begin to heal themselves. They don't have the macrophages. They have far more necrosis. Um, and that's just immediately in day one following that trauma. What's interesting is they did the same thing at day three, day seven, and day 28. And so days three and day seven, the sham intervention, so the rats that were not iced, they had more regenerating muscle fibers than the icing group. So the rat's body is healing itself and laying down clean, healthy muscle fibers to which the, the iced rats hadn't recovered. And, and you're talking three days, seven days, which is far longer in, in human years, you know, if you're going to extrapolate and, and make a correlation. But it's so interesting to me that they're not able to, once you retard that healing process, it's almost like the body never gets over it, or at least the rat's body, right? And then finally, at 28 days, again, um, iced versus sham, they had a, the, a far larger number of immature muscle fibers in the iced group. So it really just seems that blunting that healing response so early, they never caught up. You're talking 28 days later, that that group that had iced only one time, immediately post-trauma, they never caught up. Now, I, I totally understand that <laughs> we're, we're a different species, but there's so much more, there's so much that we can glean from this. And so when I had that very recently, this acute ankle sprain, he had been to his orthopedist, he'd been sitting in a boot, all he'd been doing is icing it, he'd been just totally trying to protect and limit this grade one ankle sprain, which the, the orthopedist simply kind of didn't even recommend therapy and just put him in the boot. I'm looking at that thing and I'm like, you know, how, how many days, how much time has this athlete lost by preventing his body from beginning that healing process that now we're going to have to try to make up, um, responsibly, obviously, but 
I just immediately thought of this, this blunt force trauma um, where, where injury has ensued, muscles begin to shut down, and then we're going to continue to encourage and blunt that response. Um, it, it's really it just gave me a, a new look. So again, that, that's a 2017 study. Take it for what you will. Um, maybe there's some gems there, but um, w- worth thinking about. Um, next is, is ACLs. And some of this is, is how do we apply this to our post-op world? Because I think that's one of the few populations where um, I strongly encourage ICE early post-op. Um, and I think there's, there's a major difference between those levels of trauma that are transpiring, which just had a, a great dinner with an orthopedist. We were talking about um, what it's like to go in as a physical therapist and observe surgeries. I highly recommend it. Anyone who's listening here, find a doctor. Find a doctor who gives a damn about their patients. Get in that OR because it's eye-opening to remind yourself, the physical therapist, what it is that these patients go through on the OR table and how traumatic it really is. When you look at a BTB ripped out of the front of that knee, I actually think I just talked about this on a pod um, when we were talking about um, different graft choices, but it is huge amounts of trauma. I mean, they are cutting bone, they're cutting tendon. The totally makes sense how much anterior knee pain is specifically with that BTB. But, but even you're looking at cuff repairs or, you know, it's just talking to shoulder surgeons and, and talking about remplissage and talking about labral repairs and the amount of trauma that's transpiring just from that scope going in and banging around. Um, it, it's pretty incredible. So get your ass in an OR and kind of make sure you're watching some surgery, but what's the deal with icing? post-op and how effective is it? So interesting study in 2012, looking at the effectiveness of cryotherapy after ACL ligament reconstruction. And so acute post-op ACL, they had a group that included icing post, um, post-therapy, and then they had a group that wouldn't ice post-therapy. Everyone's doing the same range of motion exercises. Um, hopefully amazing quad sets, hopefully with heel pops, hopefully getting terminal knee extension, like everyone knows has to happen immediately post-op ACL. One group, they iced, 20 minutes a day, one group, they didn't. The group that they were icing 20 minutes a day showed decreased pain. Like I said, that's one of the things we can really hang our hat on. But two, increased ranges of motion, both flexion and extension in the group that was icing 20 minutes a day. That's a pretty decent study by Dambros et al. in 2012, which I I encourage you to go through, and is really convincing to say when you get that patient post-op, making ice a part of their game. And I would strongly encourage making ice and compression as a part of that game. We'll get into to some of the uh, worthwhile compression companies at the, at the end of the pod, I think. But making that a piece seems to really increase their ranges of motion. Post-op, it's not as much about pain as it is ranges of motion. It looks like you're getting great bang for your buck by including icing at a 20-minute clip at a minimum to encourage those outcomes. Um, so, so that's kind of like my thought or, or one quick study on post-op knees. We also, there, there's some good literature on just overall knee scopes. So they were excluding um, ACLs from that and just talked, they just talked about meniscectomies. I think it was meniscectomies, debridements, if people are still doing that. Um, and what was the third? I can't think off the top of my mind, but I'll throw it in the show notes. Um, also looking at ranges and pain far better in the ice group than in the non-ice group. So that is a piece of what I encourage that icing post-op, um, knee scopes, knee surgeries really by and large. Okay. And then 
there's a there's this great study by athletic trainers. God, if you're an athletic trainer and listening to this, thank you for what you do because there are some awesome, awesome athletic trainers out there. I'm looking at you, Colin Francis, and and just some of what some of the research that ATs are are putting together is worthwhile. There's a massive study of um, systematic review of randomized control studies that came out all the way in 04, American Journal of Sports Med, but led by ATCs um, and looked at icing alone seemed to be more effective than applying no form of cryotherapy after minor knee surgery in terms of pain. So definitely, again, helped with the pain. What's interesting is ice and compression is far better than just ice. So again, two groups, one's getting ice and compression, one's just getting ice. In terms of ranges of motion out of minor knee surgery, that's what this, uh, that's what this is talking about. So range of motion and pain levels, better ice and compression than just ice. So find yourself a company that provides some, some compression, please. Okay. What's the other hot topic that, that people are always talking about ice? Do I ice? Do I not would be tendinopathies. And there's so much literature on tendinopathies on tendinitis, when to ice, whether to ice, um, whether to run from ice. Some, some are talking about heat. I think that'll be another pod. I just want to separate heat all the way out because I could, talk for hours just on on that so so maybe we'll get there um but not today so looking at ice for tendinopathies specifically with lateral epicondylitis had the exact same outcomes with physical therapy so same exercise regimen um same manual intervention one was with ice one was without ice they had the exact same outcomes and so that was a british journal of sports medicine 2006 um specifically look, looking at lateral epicondylitis the reason I love this study is because it highlights what is the biggest bang for our buck in the clinic. I, I just have to believe that it is not the use of me going to the freezer, grabbing some ice, and putting it on a patient. And I think it is, it just has become so the norm and we need to get out of that. We know that we can have far better intervention with loading, with some type of manual intervention, than we can with just applying these passive modalities. The study in 06 certainly supports that. When that patient comes in with lateral epicondylitis, you should be doing really just the following. Number one, identify why the hell you think they have the tendinitis or the epicondylitis um, or the tendinosis. Why is it there? Are they missing extension? Are they missing supination or pronation? Is it simply a matter of volume control? What is their C5 doing? Uh, what's their C5 intervention looking like around elbow flexion, around wrist extension? Um, do we need to shore that up? There, there's so many things to hit. What's their scapular mechanics look like? Let me spend time there than just throwing passive modalities on people. Um, that's where you're going to get biggest bang for your buck. I always come back to a study looking at shoulder tendinitis and shoulder tendinopathy. And, and this isn't an ice thing. They looked at outpatient care, same um, exercise routines and interventions, same manual routines and interventions. The only difference was one group got ultrasounds and one group did not. And the group that did better did not get ultrasound. And what the authors discussed was, was there just simply more use of time on whether it be education or whether it be progression or whatever it is instead of just wasting time rubbing a wand and gel on people, I feel the same way at times about ice. Think about that as you're planning out a given session. Um, 
another one, and hopefully you guys heard the the pod that I did with David Gray. If not, check it out. It was one of our most popular podcasts. Um, just getting his feel for Achilles tendinopathy, um, lower extremity strength, foot and ankle strength, mobility, um, and biomechanics. He did a great job of explaining it, so I highly encourage that. I think it was like two or three pods ago. Um, but looking at Achilles tendinopathy and how ice relates to that or how we're going to use ice for that, um, it really seems that it does have a positive effect short-term introducing cryo to Achilles tendinopathy or chronic tendinitis, um, but only short-term. Long-term, there seems to be zero effect, at least according to a study in 08, um, Journal of Sports Medicine. So, you know, give that a look. Um, it is worthwhile to, to think, um, again, what what is my use of time? But if there is a pain-limiting factor that is totally precluding a patient from either coming in or kind of um, getting through their exercises, how can I hack the system to use some type of cryotherapy to move them through um, their exercise? There is some literature on Achilles tendinopathy and just introducing that cold plunge we spoke about previously. I believe they did a study on introducing the three-minute version, and so that was with water at 40 degrees or below, and a decrease in reported pain in Achilles tendinopathy, which is fascinating. Again, the authors in that study looked at or postulated perhaps it was just an overall decrease of pain, systemic pain, or increased tolerance, I guess, to pain that allowed them to get through their therapeutic exercise to see the benefit therein. So again, just kind of reverse engineering how we can use what can be an awesome intervention of, of cryotherapy or, or lowering one's body temperature um, for positive effect. So think about how you can kind of put that in. Um, okay. Let's let's talk about um, some some symptoms. The number one reason you're going to usually go to ice is either to decrease pain or decrease edema. So it's that swollen knee. And so uh, one study that I thought was was really fascinating, specifically around edema, was 2019. Sari et al. Uh, reported that pneumatic compression with standard PT is far better than ice packs and PT for decreasing knee joint edema. Now, the literature is all over the place in terms of ice um, and its ability to decrease specific edema. There's some really good studies looking at circumferential measurements immediately following ice intervention, um, and that was without compression and it having zero effect it seems like the only way to really change your circumferential measurement is with compression. And it has been shown that pneumatic compression, so intermittent pneumatic compression, where it's squeezing the crap out of you and then easing off, um, regardless of the pattern in which it's doing that, is far better than just consistent compression. And then obviously far better than not having compression. Um, again, just inter introducing ice on top of that. Um, may help with pain. It will not help fairly convincingly with circumferential measurements and ice. Uh, I, you know, I'm working with a, uh, a football athlete now, and his biggest complaint was pre-op and now post-op was simply joint effusion. Um, and he he's working with some of the some of the best trainers um, in the league, and there's a tremendous amount of reliance on passive modalities, and yet still that knee will not calm the hell down. And so not until we really started to look at 
what is causing the need to swell um, will help us address that biomechanically. And that is far more advantageous to try to do that, incorporate it within movement um, than it is simply laying on a table. Um, so when in doubt, try to parse through those biomechanics and figure out what, what's causing the edema. How do I step in there as opposed to just fighting the edema? Because too often, um, it's just going to come back. Um, okay, let's talk about uh, performance. And so as it pertains to performance, I, I want to look at the body's ability to produce force, the, bo the body's ability to produce force over time or endurance, um, and what that looks like immediately um, following ice, um, and, and how different that can really be. So a um, couple of literature points here that, that came out of, of this lit review was looking at the body's ability to create max isometric force through the quadriceps following icing of anterior knee versus following icing of posterior knee for 20 minutes time. Um, what was interesting, that I figured that there would be decreased max output there um, following icing, but it was equal amounts of decreased output, whether you ice anterior knee or posterior knee. And so what that's kind of telling me is you're not just getting a response directly localized to where you're putting that ice. I would bet that that temperature is dropping enough that the limb is being inhibited or shut down that you're no longer able to contract those quads appropriately. So this is a conversation that I, that I had to have actually recently with a football player who was rehabbing elsewhere um, in which they would start the session with ice on the knee um, in an effort to decrease pain, but then immediately went into strength training. You got to think, does that make amazing sense? Like, does it, does it make sense to Yes, I might inhibit some of that pain with the ice, but I know based upon that study that I just quoted, it's also going to decrease your output. And so now you're not training to your optimum, um, probably not the best use of ice or not the best timing of, of icing, but that definitely kind of came out of that, of that study where, where that kind of made really good sense. Um, and then also looking at hypertrophy uh, following when followed by icing. Um, we know that muscle growth is severely inhibited when applying ice. And you can look at a study by, by Zach looking at muscle growth in, with ice versus heat. Um, and again, I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. But um, when, when they ran biopsies of muscle tissue following a lifting session, one group was iced, one group was heated there was significant increased growth factor in the heated group compared to the ice. And so you'll hear, you'll hear performance coaches or scientists talk about cold plunging following a strength effort or bout of strength training in the gym and how that seems to be, how that seems to negate the effects or the positive effects of a strength session. Let's think about that from a rehab perspective. So often, you'll go through your, your squats, your lunges, you're, you're going through some type of strengthening protocol or progressions, and then we're gonna have them sit on ice. So, okay, you're decreasing the pain. We know you're not really decreasing the edema that may have been caused by a session. I don't think it's thought 
through thoroughly enough. What is happening from a hormonal perspective? And are we blunting the strengthening effect of the session that we just had? For sure, that patient or athlete should not be dunking in a cold plunge. Huge amounts of studies there. But just based upon the Zach study and looking at the, the growth factors that were re released, both systemically as well as concretely or, or specifically in the loaded muscle that they were less or sorry, they were higher with the heat and less with the ice. Let's be careful that when we're icing patients, have that front of mind, let them ice a few hours later if they're in a bit of pain, but we want as much of those human growth factors to be released and to, to really soak through the system so that they can get the best bang for your buck. And maybe this is why we, we will see athletes have a tremendous amount of trouble putting size and mass on a leg after an ACL, especially BTB, because they have the decreased inhibition of the quadriceps. They're not activating all of those muscle tissues. Maybe their nutrition isn't all the way up to par, but also are they just icing the crap out of their knee following these strength sessions? Something to consider. I put that both in the rehab as well as the performance side. Now, this next piece of performance is fascinating. Um, I had a great conversation with uh, one of the smarter uh, football players I know, a guy named Chance Campbell. Chance Campbell um, was, was telling me all about this awesome research on polymer cooling, which is when you simply hold, um, it could be a cold water bottle, or, or they have very specific tools that live at about 50 degrees Fahrenheit, and you simply hold it um, for 30 seconds to three minutes. And what it does is it decreases your core body temperature significantly. And what we know, countless studies, I encourage you guys to Google this polymer cooling. There are, there's a tremendous amount of studies that support the body's ability to then maintain force over a far longer duration following a bout of polymer cooling than without and then compared to Palmer heating. So the ideal temperature they think is about 50 degrees Fahrenheit there. And so the, the first study they did was on dips and the amount of dips that the guy was able to complete with Palmer cooling compared to non-Palmer cooling, they said it was far more effective than anabolic steroid use. I think, I know that was in Stanford. I know that was in San Francisco. Um, and I say that because I think it was a San Francisco tight end that, that was the N of one there. Um, that was a study there, but it, it kind of blew up and you, you'll hear it on Huberman podcasts or um, Huberman lab podcasts like crazy because he's a Stanford guy. He's always talking about it. Um, but this, sorry, ch back to Chance. Chance is one who will keep his palms cool on the sidelines as he's competing. Not only that, um, when I was lucky enough to work with the um, Israeli national baseball team in um, the Olympics, in the Tokyo Olympics recently, I started to encourage a lot of a lot of use of Palmer cooling in the dugout. First of all, it's hot as hell, so it is a far more effective way to decrease your core temperature by cooling your palms than it is putting um, an ice pack or a cold towel on your head or on your neck like you'll see, or even in the armpits. Um, it's far more effective on the palms or on the bottoms of your feet if you're not wearing cleats. And so as I was talking about some of this stuff with the guys, one of the pitchers, a guy named Jeremy Bleich, who I think is director of pitching for the Pirates now, shout out to Jeremy. Jeremy's already in the corner holding ice in his hand because he's about to pitch. I'm like, 
how the hell do you know about that? He's like, oh, uh, we always used to do it at Stanford. I'm like, of course you used to do it at Stanford. So this is an awesome tool that can be used for max effect. Um, and, and I would encourage people to start kind of toying with this in the rehab world. Can I get more out of my patients? Can I get more reps? Um, can I get higher weights? Um, can I have them go for longer by utilizing some of this biohacking? Again, it, they have very expensive tools um, that can really dial in and give you the exact temperature of how your palm are cooling. Just so everyone knows, there, there have been studies that have come out that have attempted to debunk this or do not support it as heavily or cleanly as I'm um, pontificating, but something to think about, something to kind of look, look into for sure. Um, okay, so takeaways. Here, I, I just kind of put together a couple bullet points as to the way I currently approach this. You've heard me say this a few times already in the pod, but I, I figured I would just kind of dial it down, dial it all the way in. Um, I do not do things in my private outpatient world that I think can be done at home. And that's because I want to do things in PT, in rehab that require my supervision, our facility, maybe you don't have access to something like that, or that you just simply haven't done yet and will require coaching, gain of confidence, et cetera. That's what I want our session to be based on anything you can do at home because I want you to have the best use of your time. Do it at home. I'll educate the hell out of you about it. But that's why I don't ice in the clinic, at least not consistently. Um, I do a lot of educating on icing protocols, on cold plunging, on this polymer coolant, on just anything you know that, that I'm kind of tinkering with that I think is worthwhile. Um, and educate the patient don't forget your transmission of your education as the physical therapist. That's why the patient's there, okay? You don't have to do everything for them, but you can teach them um, so that they can, they can kind of do it forever, right? It's like, you know, teach a man to fish. So you want to educate them on the, on the icing principles, but I do try to insist to include some type of compression because of the billions of studies that I just quoted to you. I love a company called Proventus. They do a great job of both compressing, um, providing cooling. They also give you the option to compress and provide heat. Um, you can set it so it goes back and forth. Look into them um, if you haven't already. Um, but, at, but at the very least, I want that patient wrapping with an ACE bandage or using a Normatec if that's what they have access to. Any compression is better than no compression for sure. Acute muscle trauma. My go-to is compression. If you're going to ice, great, but you have to compress it. Um, and then I would encourage an ice plunge, like I'm thinking ankle sprains here. If you're going to try to use ice and try to mess with the temperature, the surface level temperature, if you get into an ice plunge and you're moving that foot around, that ankle around, now we're getting the movement that I want. It might make it easier for you to move because it's going to numb it up a little bit or at the very least putting it in an ice bucket but moving it. Don't just let it in there and freeze to death because I'm just thinking of that rat study previously quoted, but put it in the bucket, put it in the ice plunge, move it around, go through your alphabet, get that ankle moving, best bang for your buck. And finally, chronic tendinopathy. I actually like the use of heat. Again, we'll get into that in, in another pod. Um, but for me, tendinopathy is maybe some heat, 
get them on a volume, um, a volume control. So understanding their usage and how do we play with that? How do we overload the tissue appropriately? And how do we progress that a, a loading of the tissue, but also understanding the mechanical deficiencies that may have led to this overload. That's the way I approach tendinopathy. Stop icing your tendinopathies is what I would say today. Um, maybe I'll change that. Um, and then you want to use that next day to gauge the effect of the intervention. I can't tell you how many athletes I've had come in, rip roaring Achilles tendinopathies. We go through a session, maybe it gets a little bit better in the session. They're a little bit sore coming out of that session. And I see it and they'll voice it like, Jesus, I think I'm worse coming in or, or walking out than I was coming in. But that is not the test as to how they handled the session. It's the next morning and throughout the next day, have them journal that. That's the way you begin to load appropriately and understand, hey, here's how I'm going to beat that chronic tendinopathy as they persist. So that's hopefully a whole bunch of useful information. Um, thank you so much for listening. I encourage your comments and your feedback. Again, my mouth's been running all day. So um, hopefully this was easy enough to, to get through um, and to listen to. And any feedback, always welcome. Please do us a favor here at True Sports Physical Therapy. We would love for you to, number one, learn from this. Number two, I want you to share this. Um, and number three, let us know what you think because we, we're creating this for you. We're creating this product for you, and we got a lot more products coming. Um, we, we just wrapped up shooting our awesome ACL course. So I've been teasing that for a little bit, but that's forthcoming um, in the next month or two. And that, that's really going to dive into, at True Sports, rubber meets the road. How do you actually rehab an ACL? And there are a lot of ACL courses out there. Don't get me wrong. And a lot of them are pretty good. Um, this one really shows you step-by-step step how to teach the appropriate exercises, why we're teaching the appropriate exercises, giving you how do you progress? How do you scale those exercises? What are some of the tidbits that you have to hit as your athlete is making their way back um, to the field? And interestingly enough, it's going to have um, one of the area's absolute best surgeons talking about the way he approaches um, the surgery. He's going to talk about the way he harvests grafts and why he chooses different grafts. Great learning opportunity. So look, look for the true sports physical therapy ACL course coming your way. Um, and other than that, we got a lot of just awesome opportunities. Um, we got a rip roaring new clinic in Delaware. Um, and we're always looking to add to our team of sports physical therapists. We have clinics throughout the state of Maryland. We have two clinics now in Pennsylvania. Now we have two in Delaware. Um, and we just love helping athletes. So if you want to be a part of our True Sports family, shoot me a DM, True Sports PT on Instagram. Um, just let me know that you're interested. We've already gotten a number of physical therapists that, that have just been awesome additions to the team just, just by way of the podcast. So keep them coming. Let me know what you want to hear of more. Uh, let me know what you want to hear about less. Let me know what you love. Let me know what you hated. Can't wait to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening, guys.